Welcome back to another episode of So To Speak. Today we are chilling like villains. I'm Evan Mead. I'm Lyle Groninger. So yeah, on that note, we are literally chilling with villains. Or more specifically, some villains that we find sympathetic and relatable. Because I've found that some of the best villains you'll ever see in cinematic history are villains that you'll actually feel something for like you know how back when movies and stories were first being told on film the villains were usually like a generic bank robber or a train robber or whatever and be like i just i'm gonna take me monies i'm gonna run away and be rich i'm evil i'm greedy well i i think that's interesting because like when you're younger a lot of the stories you watch it's like very black and white there's always like a good versus evil yeah kind of archetype but as you get older, um, you start to analyze things and you start to like pick things apart, and there becomes uh, a higher shade of gray between a, a character's morality. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so that's what we're gonna do today. Uh, Lyle and I each picked four-ish uh, villains each, <laughs> and well, because we have a lot to say about the final one. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we pick. We each picked four villains from different movies of our own. Um, admittedly i think uh mine is going to be one that isn't hasn't been talked about in a long time uh but a lot of mine are like some of the more iconic villains so without for lyle's picked a couple of villains from movies that i've actually never seen or movies i just want to see but haven't gotten the chance to yet that makes them less iconic well, well, I mean, okay, <laughs> I'm trying to differentiate the term but you're between, like, hipster versus mainstream. Not saying that these are hipster villains, I mean, more people, it's good that you're I, shedding I pick, light on I these pick, villains. I picked some iconic ones, too. Yeah, I know, you we'll, did. We'll talk you about did. them soon, so you I guess I'm, I'm kicking this list off, then. Yes, sir. Okay, well, my first pick of the day is Andrew Detmer from Chronicle. Okay. So, you haven't seen Chronicle, huh? I have not, but I know that i heard nothing but good things about it i want to see it it's been on my list for a very long time so on this channel we like to make fun of dane dehan you're a fraud (laughs) (laughs) spider-man yeah but this is a performance by dane dehan that i think is his best also is his most interesting character yeah. Uh, Andrew is basically what would happen if you gave a school shooter psycho psychic powers. Oh God. Yeah. But that's not to say that he's just an inherently bad person. He just had. He just came from a super rough upbringing. He's brutalized at home. He's picked on almost constantly at school. Yeah. And the only kind of uplifting moment he has is when, <laughs> literally uplifting, is when he develops psychic powers by coming in contact with a meteorite. So he and his two friends, well, he and his two colleagues are kind of like taking the biggest advantage of having psychic powers, as you do when you're a teenager. Right. And Andrew, unlike the others who kind of are just having fun, Andrew starts developing his powers on an accelerated rate, and he starts having like a bit of a, a shift in personality throughout the film, where like he starts like taking revenge on people who wronged him oh jeez he starts um seeing himself he, he literally calls himself the apex predator 
and he starts doing things like uh, robbing gas stations or dissecting insects with his mind or um, crushing cars with nothing but his sheer will alone. And, um, yeah, the thing, though, is I don't want to make him out to be, like, some, like, horrible monster because there's a lot of factors, as I said. His family life sucks. His mother's slowly dying of a disease. And the only way he can help her is by, like, getting money to, like, get the medication to help her and stuff. So that's why he starts robbing. Um, yeah, I guess the idea is he he's a person who's been pushed too far. There's even... The whole movie is almost like set in his perspective because he's the one who records everything. He's the camera guy. Mm-hmm. So because it's found footage, everything you see is through his lens. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really like uh, DeHaan's performance in this. It's one of the... It's one of the surprise hits that I saw when I saw Chronicle. I was surprised I loved it so much. Yeah. And uh, most of the reason is because Andrew Detmer is such an interesting character. Right. And, yeah. All right. Yeah, so, um, so Dane DeHaan, he plays Andrew, correct? Yeah. Okay, so, um, one of the things that, uh, when you said, you know, Andrew calls himself the Apex Predator, I was instantly reminded of a real-life serial killer, uh, Elliot Roger, who, because he called himself the Supreme Gentleman, because his shtick was, um, I'm an involuntary celibate, or an incel, and... I said the word celibate, celibate wrong. No, he's an involuntary celibate or incel. Is he and like a centibite? Yeah, no. Celibate I'm an involuntary centipede. <laughs> oh, God. Now we're going into bonkers territory. But anyway, so yeah. he had this, you know, he was so discouraging. He had this suicidal entitlement complex that he wanted to, you know, enact before he offed himself. So I'm talking about the real life guy. But Well, yeah, it's interesting because Andrew... I wouldn't say he just kills just because he can't get laid. I'd say he's more, um, just, like, by the end of the movie, he has a full, like, mental breakdown because he got injured in a robbery where he got, like, covered in gasoline and set on fire. And, uh, as a result, um, he almost murders his own father in the hospital. Wow. And he goes on a full-on rampage throughout Seattle. And the only one who can stop him is his only other friend. Can I be honest with you? What is it with, with sympathetic villains... And murdering their own parents. Like, why... Like, I, I've noticed like, this a few times. Like, it, it, the most recent example I can think of this... Well, he's not on our list today. Sorry, fans. Uh, Arthur Fleck uh, also did the same thing to his well, mother. Yeah, it's pretty easy to say the parents are to blame when yeah. uh, the child turns out like that. So, if they're the ones who cause them all the most anxiety and stress, then they're going to lash out. There's even a pretty brutal scene where, like, his father has him in the basement and he's going to, like, beat him, but he uses all of his power to, like resist against him now you'd think that that'd be an uplifting scene or like an empowering scene but the way he does it is like pretty rough especially considering his dad is like has like permanent like chronic pain because he's a fireman yeah yeah okay i should also say that there's there's a lot of moments where like he's just by himself and you can kind of see his how his uh, mind works as he like kind of vents or feels sad or there's one moment where one of his friends actually gets killed, uh, in part due to him, yeah. and he actually shows up to his funeral and, like, apologizes and feels a tremendous amount of guilt Yeah. in that scene. So, yeah. Andrew is a very interesting villain. It's sad to see, like, the slow decline of someone's, like, uh, moral well-being just because they're given, like, ultimate power, and it's a cautionary tale, to say the least. Right. 
So it, it, does it does Chronicle? I guess I'll find out when I watch it. But watch does, it. Chron- does Chron- okay? Yeah, never mind. I'm not gonna ask questions. Um, what so, is the question? No, the question. The question was: uh, Do they kind of take the whole "with great power comes great responsibility" philosophy and turn it on its head? Uh, kind of, sort of, because like the boys are very irresponsible with right. their abilities. Mm-hmm. Like they use them to their own advantage, or they use it to prank on people. Andrew's the only one who really takes it too far, though. So, in other words, because uh, they're teenagers and so and with powers, it's everything that Spider-Man is tempted to do but won't. Because, <laughs> you know, Spider-Man has a history of, you know, pranking friends, pulling mischief. Um, but that's why, you know, the voice of reason in Uncle Ben comes. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess you could say that. <laughs> All right, what's your first pick of the day? Okay, I'll get to my pick, but first I'd just like to say something. You know, I know this microphone I'm talking into doesn't exist. I know that when I speak into its circuits, the Matrix is, te- the Matrix is telling my brain that I am entertaining, creative, thoughtful, and insightful. After a y- almost a year of recording this podcast, you know what I realized? ignorance is bliss ignorance is bliss case in point my pick is a villain that people used to talk about but don't really talk about anymore cypher from the matrix uh, he's yeah. played by uh joe pent joe pantliano ba- joe pantliano plays him and uh that's one of my most memorable quotes of him. i know everyone remembers that trailer line buckle your seatbelt dorothy because kansas is going bye-bye no this guy so I kind of can't really I can't really talk about why he's a sympathetic villain without giving away what the Matrix is or what it's about. For all two of you listening to this who don't who haven't seen the Matrix, the Matrix is uh, a was created by the Wachowskis at the time they were brothers now they're sisters but anyway so they based the movie is about this uh, Keanu Reeves plays this computer hacker named Neo and he keeps for the first half of the movie no for the first half hour. He's looking for the answer to this cerebral question, what is the Matrix? He finds out through a character named Morpheus that the Matrix is a simulated reality that has been created to enslave mankind. When you take a red pill in the Matrix, you are essentially, your circuits to the giant computer are cut off and you wake up in this terrifying scenario where... You're in a birth pod as an almost an embryonic human being, and essentially, yeah, you discover the horrifying truth that humanity, the world has been destroyed, and a master race of machines has enslaved humanity. The real, the real world in the Matrix sucks because all of humanity, or what's left of humanity, lives underground. They have to fly around in hovercrafts. Everything's cold and dark all the time. They eat sludge whenever they're on missions apparently when you get to zion the actual civilization there is real food but when you're on duty in one of the hovercrafts you're basically eating sludge every day and this guy's stuff this guy cypher just had enough of it and he on one of the missions that the crew goes on he completely he 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 he, 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 he makes a deal with these programs called agents that he will basically give them what uh, the agents want. He'll give the agents what they want, but he will be reinserted back into the Matrix completely with his memory wiped. He won't remember a single thing about 
the way the world is. He will just accept the Matrix for the reality that it is. I can't help but... If, even though, like, you know, he has n no redemption arc whatsoever, you can't help but feel like his actions are somewhat justified. I mean, how he... His philosophy, I actually have sympathy for, but his actions are so reprehensible because he literally offs... Uh, the Morpheus's crew one by one. Yeah, he sells them out. Yeah. yeah, he sells them out and he kills them one by one in really disturbing ways too. Like yeah. it's like I disagree, Trinity. I think the Matrix can be more real than you give it credit for. For instance, if I pull this plug, you have to watch Apoc die, and then he pulls the plug and Apoc he pulls not Apoc. Yeah, or switch. Not switch. Yeah, but yes, <laughs> those two characters that. The whatever people. Yeah. I mean... Uh, anyways, yeah. So, Cypher in your eyes isn't so much, like, a redeemable person, but you find his outlook on life interesting. I find his... Not his outlook on life specifically. Well, the he, life he, of the Matrix. His, the his, 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 his situation, the way he perceives the situation is somewhat sympathetic because the real world that humanity is so desperately trying to save sucks. So the, the main goal that's established of humanity and the matrix is they want to destroy the matrix and wake all up all the people so that they can rebuild the world. But the world sucks. Like you're going to, you're going to be in this perpetual war with uh, a race of machines and your atmosphere above ground is barely breathable. So, and it's, it's dark all the time. So I'm like, you got a long way ahead of you. And I guess he's kind of like, you know, looking for, uh, temp, uh, permanent solutions to, t to temporary issues because over hundreds of years, yeah, theoretically you can rebuild the world. But, um, yeah, I just thought, you know, I kind of agree with Cypher. The reality that Neo is supposed to embrace when he's woken up sucks. Like why you, you let, you're taken away from the matrix and you put into this, you know, shitty new reality, even though that reality is real. So, yeah, not too much more to say about Cypher. I just thought, you know, the whole I choose... When he said, I choose the Matrix, and when he gives that speech about the steak in the restaurant, I couldn't help but feel from a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, no he gets to grow up to be... He could have He could have been a rock star. He could have. He could have been famous. Or an actor. Or an actor. <laughs> Some big shit. But, you know, Tank Joey, had... Joey Pants. But Tank had to put a stop to that, so... Is it Tank or the other guy? Uh, yeah. He, Tank he, was the he, brother, I think. Yeah, Tank is the little brother who's also the operator. Uh, so, so when Cypher tries to commandeer the ship, he hi he kills Dozer, the big guy. Oh, Dozer's the big and guy. And he, he tries to kill... Thing. He thought he killed Hank, but... Hank, Tank. You know, he, he he thought he killed Tank. We'll talk about Hank in a second. Oh, so yeah, we'll get to <laughs> him. Next Sorry. One. Um, we'll get to so so, so it, he he thought he thinks he kills Tank, but he but and yeah. then the, the uh, way I, I mean, let's not talk yeah. about his fate. But anyway, yeah. But yeah. believe it or not, you piece of shit, you're still gonna burn. That's all F I have to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, my next pick is a total hipster pick. It's a it's a deep cut. And uh, it's from a it's a movie directed by a, a guy who I've taken a huge amount of uh, I've gained a whole lot of respect for over the years, George A. Romero. Ah, uh, yes. And I'm gonna talk about Martin. So Martin is from, Martin from where? Martin from Martin. Oh, the movie's okay. called Martin. Oh, and okay. it's a it's a late '70s vampire flick. Okay. But it takes a very interesting uh, dissection in the genre. Basically, Martin 
is a is, is like a teenager, kind of a young adult kind of guy, who has been raised throughout his entire life to believe that he is in his eighties and that he is actually a Nosferatu. It's ever since birth, every single one of his family members has uh, believed that he is like almost like the Antichrist or something that he drinks blood, and he's kind of like. While he doesn't necessarily believe it, he's kind of still been, like, nurtured into this, uh, belief. And so he does develop a bloodthirst throughout his life where he'll, like, sedate young women and slash their wrists with razor blades and just lick the blood off of them. And that's, that's disturbing, but the thing of it is, is that you kind of can't help but wonder if this guy would have been better if he he just wasn't treated like a monster every single day like if this is like just something that his family uh, brought upon him and there's like there's there's a lot of quiet moments in in this film where he's just sort of like talking to the the townspeople or he, he in a man of my own heart he dates an older woman oh wow and uh sort of like bonds with her and and when he, when he starts like assimilating into a normal society he he's a little bit less like bloodthirsty he kind of develops more humanity but unfortunately like he still has the cravings every so now and then so he'll like chase after like homeless people or like he'll barge into like a, a woman's house when her husband's away i see only to catch her with another man oh wow yeah now uh yeah martin also has like a very tragic end i don't want to go into it but basically his family like there's some retribution after a few things he's done when did uh this movie come out uh i think 1978 oh okay yeah yeah um yeah no it's interesting like there's a lot of moments where he'll have like flashbacks to like black and white almost hammers film style like footage of him like being chased by mobs or like seducing women or crosses like it's almost like his head is like 24 7 like i'm a vampire i'm a vampire i'm oh, a vampire God. okay kind of like, must resist the urge to not quote nicholas cage <sighs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's basically it it's almost like that but better this totally sounds like something George A. Romero would do. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it bombed, and it's not very easy to get your hands on it, but oh. the whole thing is on YouTube. YouTube, tube, tube. Um, okay. But yeah, if you want, like, a physical copy, it, it's kind of out of print, unfortunately. Damn. I know, uh, if you want more details on uh, this film, uh, Red Lair Media did a review of it uh, a, a few years ago, so I highly recommend that. They released it around the time George A. Romero passed away. Is that how you came to hear about it? or? Yeah, actually, that's what oh, okay. introduced me to uh, Martin. Oh, okay. It's very underrated. I see. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So my next villain is... Uh, he actually didn't start out as a villain. Uh, like, I guess, like, no, none of these... Unless you're Megamind, do, are, you, do you, are you really born as a villain? So, anyway, so, case in point, uh, going into TV show territory... My next pick is uh, Walter White, from what is debatably the greatest TV show ever made, Breaking Bad. So, now, Walter, we all know his story. Um, I, was, I found the premise interesting ever since it was elevator pitched by my editing instructor on my first day of film school. My editing instructor was like, okay, who here has seen Breaking Bad or not seen Breaking Bad about 
half the people put their hands up and the other half didn't. I was in the half that didn't. He the elevator pitch was a chemistry teacher uh, who is broke gets terminal a diagnosis of terminal lung cancer. So in order to pay his outrageous medical bills, he turns to cooking crystal meth. So like you do. But yeah. I mean, the American healthcare system has driven people to crazy ends. I feel like Breaking Bad works as a societal commentary on so many levels. So, anyway, he recruits this chemistry uh, flunk uh, who actually knows a thing about, you know, the seedy drug underworld of, uh, of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Jesse Pinkman. And the two of them... Uh, Basically, the whole show is about their adventures and misadventures in cooking crystal meth, getting in with big uh, crime bosses, and constantly evading the DEA, who, um, the, the top uh, cop for investigating drugs and busting drugs in Albuquerque is... Walter White's own brother-in-law, Hank Schrader, played by the amazing Dean Norris. By the way, so Hank, uh, Walt is played by Brian Cranston, which at the time, this this show premiered in 2008. At the time, Brian Cranston wasn't really known for dramatic roles, but I feel like this propelled his acting career from, you know, that, you know, laughable goofball dad from Malcolm in the Middle to... to uh, don't fuck with me or I'll fucking cut your nuts off, you know, uh, crime boss. So, uh, and that could have not been made more clear in his speech he gives in season four when, you know, uh, he says, I am not in danger, Skyler. That's his wife. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets his head blown off. Do you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. And, uh... The whole show, I've, I've talked about a show, but as you watch uh, him, he devolves, he devolves into a villain to the point where, like, yeah, I feel for him, I get that you're trying to look after your family, I get that you've got cancer, but uh, eventually it gets to a point in the last season where no, you, it's very hard to feel sorry for him. I'm not going to give away what happens or how it happens, but his his uh, de-evolution reaches a point where I there are a couple episodes in the final final season where I felt no sympathy for him at all. Up and I had felt sympathy for him for most of the show, but then I go from feeling sympathy for him for most of the show to a little bit of the show not feeling any sympathy for him. But in the last season, in the very last episode, in the finale. I felt sympathy for him once again. He probably tries his damnedest to have some sort of redemption arc. Yeah. Like, he ties up most of his loose ends by the end of the series. Yeah. Uh, just for the record, the one loose end he didn't tie, he couldn't tie up, uh, they made a Netflix uh, TV movie about that called El Camino. I watched it. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, people said it could have been better. I didn't really know what to expect. I just kind of checked it out. I was like, yeah, well, yeah this is cool. cool. I have closure now. That was good. <laughs> yeah, so because we're not very... We're not spoiler-friendly on this show, so um, we're not going to talk too much about it, but a chemistry teacher 
who goes through a whole lot of change. And what and what's brilliant is it harkens back to something he says in the very first episode when those punk ass kids weren't listening to him give a lecture. Chemistry is the study of change. And he was like the best chemistry teacher ever. How yeah. could you not be how could you be bored during a class like that? Yeah, well it's it would be like if Ned Flanders was your chemistry teacher, you know, how seriously could you actually take him? Hmm. <laughs> Remember that episode of The Simpsons where Ned Flanders God damn it, we're referencing The Simpsons again. Maybe we should uh, The Ghost on. of Cody has possessed me. <laughs> the nineties guy yeah. coming back yeah. to haunt you. Yeah. <laughs> Shall, okay. I, shall I go next? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. All right. Well, speaking of Simpsons references, my next pick has been touched upon on that show so many goddamn times, especially with the character of Seymour Skinner oh, and his God. mother. And now I'm going to talk about Mr. Norman Bates, Ooh. the caretaker of the... Oh, man, I forgot the name of the hotel. Ba- not Bates Motel, that's it. The Bates Motel. His name's in the... They did a whole spin-off series about that they many did, years later. They? Yeah, I watched a little bit of that show, but basically... Yeah, I, I think the reason why I paused was because I was so tempted to say the Overlook Hotel, but that's not what it is. Oh, yeah. It's because the house overlooks the motel, so yeah. I, my synapse totally broke there. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. All right, so Norman is a very conflicted character. He spends most of his time alone... He runs a motel that doesn't get a ton of traffic thanks to the uh, literal highway taking up most of their traffic that was installed a few years before. Um, He has a very um, interesting relationship with his mother that I'll get into a little later. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's very... The reason why I think he's sympathetic is that you can't really tell if he's a a person who's in control of himself or if he's a prisoner of his own mind because Mm. there's two sides to him there's norman who's the uh you know the the docile eccentric you know pretty harmless individual you would you would you could spend time with but the problem is the more you the more layers you unravel with norman the more you kind of realize how like unhinged he is and um then there's Norma, who's this dormant, uh, psychopathic side that unlocks any time there's a woman present, especially in, like, a suggestive matter. And, um, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's interesting with Norman, because he's rather complex for a character of his time. And, uh, that plays into, like, the show with Bates Motel. And, um, yeah, I don't know, it's just, like, do you feel like... He's, do you feel like he's, like, sympathetic because he just can't help himself, or? I feel like, uh, because the, he, the, uh, Alfred Hitchcock was ahead of his time in many ways, and a lot of his work, would you say that a lot of Hitchcock's work went misunderstood by uh, the audiences? Some of it, maybe like Vertigo or something, but yeah. no, Psycho was pretty well received. Yeah, so, the point is... I feel like, you know, he was trying to say something about mental health before everyone and their mother was talking about mental health, like, years, many decades later. Um, But what I find so fascinating is that in not just, you know, other movies, but every single, a lot of the cartoons that we watched when we were kids, we talked about The Simpsons, they've referenced Psycho many, many times. But uh, one of the most, I find that cartoons 
from Looney Tune, from like current Looney Tunes, post two thousand Looney Tunes cartoons to Yvonne of the fucking Yukon have made some kind of joke about Psycho and the dynamic that Norman Bates has with his mother. Well, when you make a movie that came out seventy years ago, people are gonna like reference it. Yeah, to no end. And it is a very iconic film. Yeah. And uh, Anthony Perkins is excellent as Norman. Yeah. I, I can't take my eyes off of him. I feel like any scene that doesn't have Norman just kind of isn't as good. Yeah. <laughs> mm. All right. I'm ready to move on. Okay, so uh, the mm. next villain that we're actually going to talk about happens to be my all-time favorite villain in cinematic history. Someone, I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not an, I'll see another villain that will replace him, but... Case in point, Darth Vader. Now, for those of you Star Wars fans who don't like to acknowledge that anything exists beyond the original trilogy, I thought long and hard about whether or not to include Darth Vader on this list, but I'm going to be honest. When I saw the original, the first time I ever saw the original trilogy, I was eight or nine years old, and at that time, the only other prequel that existed was The Phantom Menace. Now, uh... You know, in that movie, Anakin is just a little boy with no force powers, so you don't... You're told that, you know, there's danger that, you know, can be sensed with him and all that. But the point is, even without the pre-existing, you know, knowledge of the character Anakin Skywalker, Vader, even if you take the original trilogy on its own, I actually think that Vader can be... was very sympathetic because... He's a total monster and badass in a new, in the first, in a new hope and empire. But when you watch Return of the Jedi, there are a couple of moments where you once you once you realize that he was telling the truth about to Luke about being his father, you do there's a, there are a couple of scenes and then when you see his dynamic with the emperor, you actually really realize that yeah, whatever this man was is now completely lost and he's not even much of a power figure. He's more a machine than man now. Twisted and evil. But, and what I find so interesting is that, uh, yeah, no, I found that, you know, when I went back and watched the original trilogy years later, on that note, that line that Obi-Wan says, uh, Luke is the only person in the entire galaxy who thinks that Vader can be turned back to the, to the light. Every single character from Yoda to Obi-Wan to even, like, Leia thinks that like you know there's no way you can get vader back he's just too far gone but the one scene that gave a clue that a bit of anakin skywalker was still there was the scene where uh you know vader and luke or vader luke turns himself into the empire and vader goes to meet him on a landing platform on endor and uh he's the last thing vader says to luke before he's taken away is the Emperor will show you the true nature of the Force. He is your master now. And then Luke just looks at him blankly and says, Then my father's truly dead. And then he, the stormtroopers take him away, and then Vader just kind of looks downward into like the pit of the Force. And even though you can't see his facial expressions because he has a mask the whole time... Not the whole time. They're, not the whole time, we'll yeah. get into that. So, yeah, even though you sense that a little bit of him is very, very conflicted, and he tries to deny the conflict so much. But, um, so that's why, even if you don't acknowledge that anything exists beyond the original three films, I still think Vader is a sympathetic villain. Um, now, with Anakin Skywalker, on the other hand, I feel, um, 
in my I feel like a lot of people's opinions on Anakin hinge upon one unfortunate thing, and that is whether or not you think Hayden Christensen is a good actor. Sadly, a lot of people don't think his performance as Anakin Skywalker was that good. I have my disagreements. It has its it has its low points and its high points, but overall, watch something other than the uh, the, the Star Wars prequels. Hayden well, Christensen. That's kind of irrelevant. What we're talking about here is can can uh, Hayden Christensen play like a sympathetic Anakin? For sure. Like, do you remember that? I know, Lyle. You hate Attack of the Clones with a passion, and thanks yeah. to a talk that Michael Lake and I actually had last Star Wars Day, I actually am at a point where, yeah. Attack of the Clones has more flaws than The Phantom Menace, so I might actually replace that as my least favorite Star Wars movie, but time will tell. Okay, well, what, what, what point part is, of that movie made him sympathetic? He, in the beginning, right from, from the set, from the early scenes where he appears, like, Obi-Wan asks him, hey, you look tired, he's like, I don't sleep well anymore, and Obi-Wan immediately knows, because of your mother. Again, the villains and their mo- and their parents, or mothers, it's really weird. But, I, think, I think it sucks that they liberated Anakin and got him out of that goddamn planet, but it's like, no, you have to leave your mom behind. We're not yeah. even going to go get her, like, after all this uh, Trade Federation shit's done. That's actually, that's, many critics of the prequels have pointed that out, and that actually was the intention that Lucas was trying to tell. A lot of people, you know, uh, complained that, you know, Anakin, they shouldn't have showed Anakin as this little boy in The Phantom Menace, but... Lucas has gone on record, supposedly gone on record, saying that was his intention. He wanted Anakin to be a little boy so he could show on film the separation anxiety between a little boy taken from his mom too early. So, ten years later, he grows up into a young man. He goes, he gets these horrific nightmares that his mother's being tortured alive. So he goes to back to Tatooine, and lo and behold, she's been captured by sand people. And then, I feel like the scene where... He uh goes to f- he finds her, and the scene and the and the scene that follows are the best scenes that him that he acts in, because you know when I see uh his uh when I see his reaction to like his mother's dying corpse uh in his in his arms in that hut in the middle of the desert, and then you see the facial expressions like where he just is like almost gonna ball and then his face just lifts up with you know this burning fire and rage and then he goes and slaughters the whole uh, tribe of sand people and then he goes back to uh the lars homestead where padme is waiting and uh he basically goes on that famous rant that has now become a meme where it's like um you know i killed them i killed them all they're dead every single one of them and not just the men but the women and the children too. They're like animals, and I slaughter them like animals. I hate them. The, I thought the amazing. To be angry is to be human. You're not going to be saying that in three years, you dumb bitch. <laughs> God, pay me. Um, but anyways, so but even before that, he's saying someday I will be, I will be the most powerful Jedi ever. I promise you, I will even learn to stop people from dying. So you can see that he is a because he feels like his own mother's death was a failure. He felt motivated to just get powers at any cost to stop the people he cared about from dying. 
So, when Palpatine comes along after Anakin starts having nightmares in Revenge of the Sith about uh, a certain secret wife dying in childbirth, and Palpatine alludes to the fact that somewhere out there a Sith Lord found the Force powers to stop people from dying and to prevent and to cheat death, basically. But there were so many more elements that Revenge of the Sith didn't really get into. But you have to understand, Anakin felt insecure about the state of the whole society that was the Republic from early on. Like, when he's a when he's a kid, he doesn't have much of an opinion on it. But in Attack of the Clones, there's that scene where it's like, he's talking to Padme, who is a senator, saying, We need a system where politicians sit down, discuss the problem, agree what's in the best interest of all the people, and then do it. Padme's like, that's exactly what we do. The trouble is people just don't always agree. Then they should be made to. By whom? Who's going to make them? You? Of course not me. Someone. Someone wise. Sounds an awful lot like a dictatorship to me. Well, if it works. And he's almost like flirting with her. I'm like, are you... Like, I mean, so this... Not a, not a good... The, skepti- the skepticism of democracy was there early on. Now, Revenge of the Sith doesn't really... Explores it, sort of. But the, the media that explores it way better is the Clone Wars uh, animated series. Now, Lyle, you uh, have... Before, before we get into Clone Wars, I did like... As cheesy as fuck as the scene was, when he's finally put into the suit... Uh, at the end of Revenge of the Sith. And, like, he... And, and you can see Palpatine's with him. It's like... Uh, what happened to Padme? I'm afraid that you killed her in your anger. He's like, what? No! She's alive! She was alive! And he breaks out of his silly little table and, like, just screams at the top of his lungs, no. You know... I guess that's just a Skywalker trait. I'm gonna refer you to our... Your listener... Our listeners to, uh... Our Star Wars episode that we did yeah, we at talk, Christmas time. I knew we were gonna talk about this one the longest. Yeah, so... But the, the point is... That scene... I said it before... We'll, we'll just put it in a flashback. Yeah, I said it before, but, um... Anyways... I feel like in the Clone Wars series... Anakin questions... Not just the society of the Republic... But the Jedi's role in the galaxy, and so do a ton of other characters. Like, the whole Clone Wars anthology show is basically... uh, There are worlds that the Separatists are trying to conquer and the Republic is trying to retake. Now, some worlds in the Clone Wars show do not want any part in the Clone Wars, but sometimes the Republic will go and say, yeah, no, we're we're occupying this world because we absolutely need you safe from the Separatists. Or the Separatists will offer them a ton of money, say, you know, we're going to make your life better. So, and a lot of people saw the Jedi as not peacekeepers, but interventionists. Like, similar to, like, the world we have today where, you know, some countries just march into other countries and said, yeah, you need protection against your own will. We're going to occupy you to make sure you're protected. But we're secretly going to suck all your resources dry. Um, that uh, So, in other words, I feel like the, combin- the combined stories of Attack of the Clones, The Clone Wars Show, and Revenge of the Sith, if you put all those elements together... They were a, sto- a cautionary tale about fascism, and Anakin was so impressionable and so vulnerable that he just fell prey to it. And then, when he becomes Darth Vader, that's where once you know, once you have that pretext, you realize that yeah, this kid was so that this kid fell down a dark path, and in some cases against his own will. So I mean, a lot. I know like a lot of people say yeah, Anakin's really dumb, but. 
when you're in that unstable of a society and in a perpetual war that you're afraid will never end, yeah, like, your mind's not going to be thinking too straight either, even if you are a Jedi Knight, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, um... I think the very first glimpse, if you look at the Star Wars films, of Vader actually being, like, a vulnerable person is in that really, uh really powerful scene in empire where like a general walks in on him he's in that giant egg shell looking thing and his helmet descends onto his body but you can still see his pus scarred like back of his head yeah kind of as a glimpse as to what he is underneath the suit that is true and how he's maybe like not as powerful without it oh yeah all right, so I have to say about uh, Mr. Vader. That's pretty much. I'd like to just comment on what my two favorite appearances. I know he's appeared in a bunch of other media other than outside the original trilogy. Um, but he he was in Rebels. Him and Ahsoka Tano have a really big uh, duel in that show. Um, but uh, my favorite performance of him in the mo- in live action movies is in this order in Empire Strikes Back. That's my favorite portrayal of him because. In that movie, he's totally unhinged, and you get to see just how cruel how he, he will actually be. And then in uh, Rogue One, they act. He's even though he's in the movie for two scenes, you actually kind of show a little reminiscent uh, reminder that yeah, this guy is super powerful. He's in control. He intimidates at every turn, and he won't hesitate to kill you. And they really, really show that in the last two minutes of, of Rogue One. I know you didn't really care for Rogue One. I thought it was all right. But that yeah. the last half hour of Rogue One is awesome. But And the last two minutes of Rogue One were Vader's time to shine. So, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about Darth Vader. What about, what about Return of the Jedi? In Return of the Jedi, I like his redemption arc. I like how there's no facial expressions... Uh, when you see the Emperor torturing the shit out of Luke with Sith lightning. Well, did you like the final scene with him where he uh, connects with his son for the last time? Oh, you're talking about this? The, yeah, the the scene where he is unmasked. Yeah, that was re- that's really powerful. And I want to look at my son with my own eyes. Yeah. And then of course, um, how did you feel about you know the chain the retconning of Sebastian oh, the, Shaw, the Force Ghost thing? Yeah, the Force Ghost. Uh, well, I've always had complaints that Lucas likes to take actors who were previously in the movie, cut them out, and just replace them with his new cast of buddies. Well, I actually... Like Jeremy Bullock. I'm gonna say something a little controversial. I know a lot of people didn't like Hayden Christensen being in The Force Ghost. I feel like Lucas did that to tie in the prequels, because if Sebastian... Because we only saw Sebastian Shaw for a second, and even if I were a kid seeing... When I saw Return of the Jedi for the first time, I'm like, I know that's Anakin, but the only connection I had to Anakin was this little boy. You see him as a man in a Forkos, as a Force ghost. You don't know who that guy is or was. You just know he's... That's what he used to be like, and it's what he would look like... It, it's what Anakin Skywalker would look like if he hadn't turned to the dark side and just aged normally. But, I, yeah, no. In a way, the Hayden Christensen retcon in Return of the Jedi both works and does not work at the same time. It, it's so weird. It, it's a divisive move. It really sure. is. Um, one of the changes I did, like, we talked some cha- consistent changes, was Lucas didn't really have a plan for what the Emperor was going to look like. So when he appears in Empire... He's this weird, like, deformed, like, figure who is shrouded in shadow. And they don't even... 
the design the way they designed that uh effect was they didn't even use a person they just plopped like a bunch of faces together and in a, like a almost like a mesh and then when they realized oh shit he's gonna have to make an appearance in return of the jedi we have to design redesign the emperor so i like the fact that they got ian mcdermott back to redo the scene for for the special edition of empire yeah, that, that, that was a reasonable uh uh, retcon. Yeah. So, anyways, no, that, we don't want to that's enough. This. That's enough. Not, about enough Star Wars. <laughs> you want to hear us talk about Star Wars? Go watch our almost three-hour episode, four hour. or almost four-hour episode we did on Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, well, speaking of characters who can't survive without their uh, biomechanical suit, my last pick of the night is Mister Freeze. Ah. And no, I'm not just talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger and Batman Robin. I'm talking about him as a whole. Can can I just be okay? So if, you, if you I'm want to reference s- Batman and Robin, I'm, now's your chance. No ice puns, but I'm kind <laughs> no of nervous puns. to ask: Is that our audience? We're, we might have to conduct a poll somehow. Is that version of Mister Freeze the the first version that comes to mind when people think of Mister Freeze? Well, when I think of Mister Freeze, I think of his appearance in the animated series. Yeah. As well as his excellent appearance in Arkham City. Yeah. It's probably the best part of the game, in my opinion. But anyways, uh, a little backstory. So, uh, Dr. Victor Freeze was a cryogenicist who, um, I don't know if that's a word, but he, he was interested in uh, cryogenic healing. And when his uh, wife, uh, Nora, was given a terminal illness, he sought to uh, preserve her in a cryogenic chamber until he could find her cure. And uh, that's that's the driving force of his character is that unlike other villains who either just want to rob for, rob banks or like cause trouble for their own self amusement, Mister Freeze is on a mission. Yeah. And uh, despite the fact that he was just an ordinary person who got in a horrible uh, chemical accident, which made his body uh, highly vulnerable to any temperature be- above sub zero. Um, he, 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 it's his, like, he's, like, driven to save his wife by, yeah. like, collecting as much funds as he can to just, like, develop a cure that may or may not work. Yeah. And, uh, he wasn't initially, like, a well-rounded character. It wasn't until the animated series with the episode Heart of Ice oh, yeah. that he actually developed into a more sympathetic character. He's a very, he's very sad. He's very tragic. Almost every interpretation after that episode paints him that way. Even, even Batman Robin does a pretty solid job of like showing his backstory and like what he strives for. Ignoring the ice buns and that kind of like ruins his character a lot. But yeah, Mr. Freeze is just like a really hapless soul. That doesn't mean he's not dangerous. He's very dangerous. Yeah. And anyone who crosses him will face his wrath. But he is, like... There, there's a reason for what he does. And that makes him very relatable. And, um... Yeah, again, if I had to recommend, like, any iteration, I think the animated series one is excellent. As well, like, um... I already said this, but yeah, like... When I, when I first played Arkham City and I saw Mr. Freeze, I'm like, how, how present is he gonna be? And, um... Yeah, no, I love him. He's voiced by Maurice LaMarche. <laughs> they do such a cool job with his uh, character where it's like, he almost has he almost helps Batman throughout the game, actually, and he even oh, gives wow. him a gadget to get, uh, to help him uh, throughout the game. So it's almost like he's an unwilling participant in the yeah. story. But yeah. 
No, I like Mr. Freeze a lot. I think a lot of people kind of write him off because of the Batman-Robin entry, but I really think people should, like, reevaluate him because he's an excellent character. Yeah. All right. Okay, so uh, on the note of comic book heroes, I think, like, with, for the last for the last, last pick, we kind of put our heads together. Um, this started with, you know, me initially wanting to talk about Loki from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. However... Digging a little deeper, there actually are many other sympathetic villains that came in post Avengers: Age of Ultron. Because like Phase Three is where it started to happen. A yeah, lot. Phase Three, and I guess upcoming Phase Four. Like we've gotten some really, really, really uh, sympathetic Marvel villains. Now, um, uh, first, I want to just start take it back to where it all started. So, in Phase 1, the villains sucked. Like, they were... In Phase 1 and 2, the villains sucked. They were cookie-cutter garbage... They were cookie-cutter generic villains who weren't very memorable. They often felt like just a copy of the hero they were facing off against. But then, something interesting happened in 2012. In The Avengers, Loki, Thor's long-lost brother, was the villain who comes to Earth with a cliché motivation to take over the world... I said this leaving the theater. The movie was awesome, but the villains' motivations were just very basic and cliche. But people fell in love with Loki. Like, Loki was everywhere. Like, in in pop culture, the action figures of him were very hard to find. But yeah, no, Loki was extremely popular. But what I find so fascinating is that in 2011, the Thor movie came and went no one really raved that hard about it. It was popular for like a month, and then Captain America, the first Avenger, stole the spotlight for another month, and then it, that, those kind of faded away. But everyone knew that, you know, the team-up movie was coming. We'll see how that turns out. In the first Thor movie, people... The event, the success of the Avengers kind of had people go back to Thor and look at Loki differently. Because I'm willing to say that Loki was the best villain of Phase 1 by far. Yeah. Because... In Thor, here's what you find out about him. He's Thor's supposedly very loyal uh, brother um, in the first half of the movie. Then Thor fucks up, gets banished to Earth, and then Loki's kind of left on Asgard, very conflicted. Like, yeah, I love my brother, but yeah, no, he's a reckless buffoon, and we can't let him just get away and do whatever he wants. And he wants to be king, so that's very dangerous. Then um, Loki gets tempted to know some more answers because... In the incident that caused Thor to be banished, they go to the plant, the realm of Jotunheim, which is dominated by frost giants, and uh, it's established that if a frost giant touches you, uh, you'll get severe uh, frostbite. Not to sound cheesy, that's literally what happens. Loki gets gra- gets groped by a frost giant, and he doesn't have a searing pain, and that kind of leads him to ask to ask Odin some more questions, and then Odin reveals that Loki was fucking adopted, and the scene in which he finds that out is painful to watch like for Loki because Loki is like is like in tears sneering and screaming at Odin like a petulant child but it's like it's like if I, it's like if Draco Malfoy if you found out the horrific backstory of Draco Malfoy but I felt sorry for him I, I, I recently saw all the Harry Potter movies I never once felt sorry for Draco I'm sorry if anyone else did but no so Loki um you feel sorry for him, and then when you... The thing about Loki is that just like Heath Ledger's Joker, or the Joker in general, 
his motivations were never consistent throughout the movie. First, you, f- and then he manages to put Odin into that stupid Odin sleep or whatever, or Odin yeah. just does that. Odin just does that. I guess vol involuntarily or voluntarily i don't know maybe it was on purpose like uh i'm out <laughs> well no like they do say like everything the all father all everything the all father of asgard does he does for a reason so exactly he wanted to get out of being uh so then, called out. <laughs> so then loki basically has well, so with odin knocked out and thor banished loki rules asgard in perpetuity for most of the move for most of the second act in the third act he makes a backdoor deal with the frost giant say yeah I will sneak you into Asgard and you can assassinate Odin. The Frost Giants do that, try to do that, and Loki slaughters them and tries to frame them for, they tried to take out the Allfather. We have an excuse to genocide them now. But while that's going on, Thor uh, basically redeems himself on Earth and learns his lesson and comes back to Asgard to challenge Loki. It's like, hey, Loki, you can't kill an entire race. And then that's where Loki reveals... I never wanted the throne. I only ever wanted to be your equal. So Loki, very accurately, was jealous of Thor the whole time. So, and you really get a sense of that when you see him in the Avengers. Um, and then uh, Loki and Thor have their square off. Odin wakes up out of the Odin sleep. And then uh, Loki, quote, dies, end quote. And then. It won't be the first time. It won't be the first time. So. The first time Loki dies, uh, he falls into a wormhole, but then he's back in the Avengers, and his motivation is, I want, you know, to because I was shafted from being the king of Asgard, I'm just going to settle for being the king of Earth, and I'm going to rule Earth like the god that I am. And he does it because he's jealous of Thor, and all he wants to be Thor's equal, so knowing that, it kind of adds depth to what is otherwise a cliche motivation for Loki's part. But then, at the very end of the Avengers, if you and throughout the Avengers, you, it, they allude very cleverly that someone is pulling Loki's strings. That Loki is just one facet of this whole uh, evil plot. Here we go. And then, so late, so then, fast forward to Thor: The Dark World. Uh, you want to talk about how Loki, you know, has inconsistent motivations. Loki was the only good part of that boring-ass movie. Like, he was. And he's only in it... He's not in it for very long, unfortunately. They literally had to reshoot the movie to add more Loki because he was so popular. So anyway, so... In Thor The Dark World, a threat comes... It's it's a beat-for-beat beat remake of the first Thor movie. A threat comes to Asgard. Odin won't let Thor stop it, so they have to turn to the most controversial thing to stop it. They have to go free Loki from jail, and it's like, hey, Loki... Can you help us stop whatever the name of that guy was that was attacking Asgard? See, this is my point. The, the For a long time, the MCU villains were so generic that I can't remember their names or who played them. So, then, uh, Loki dies, supposedly, again. Yeah. But... The whole time you see him interact with Thor, you're not really sure if, like, he if he deep down he loves Thor or just wants to murder Thor. In the end, it kind of leaves you off on the note of, yeah, I'm secretly ruling Asgard now, bitch. Like, Odin, I'm, I don't know, we, I'm not telling you what I did with Odin or where he is, but you're gonna find out in three years. No, four years, Jesus. So, um, fast forward, so, getting into season three, into phase Marvel season. season. No, they <laughs> almost the, the the movies literally do feel like seasons. It's like cinematic television. Yeah. It really is. Like each movie feels like a an episode, and each phase feels like a season. So 
in in phase three that's everything after ant-man uh the villains go from the villains went from being cookie cutter i'm evil rah-rah evil plan uh morons to they had depth to them and it all started with i know you'd like to think it started with uh uh what's his face uh uh, Vulture. Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming. No, no, no. Remember Zemo? I was going to mention Zemo in this podcast. Yeah. yeah. Zemo is critically underrated. You know what? In the, in the same year that Batman vs. Superman came out... No, Lex Luthor is is, a, is an iconic film because everyone knew knows who he is through from past movies in the comics. No one knew who Zemo was. Zemo did everything Lex Luthor did, but... Uh, better. Not, but better. Yeah, no, seriously. Well, His plan made more sense. Uh, His motivation was also kind of heartfelt, too, yeah. because like he lost everything after the Sokovia attack. Yeah. And I guess Man of Steel really ushered in a new god audience's questioning, do these superheroes ever care or think about the collateral damage they cause and the lives that get destroyed when a superhero crashes your office building, destroys your office building while they're stopping a bad guy? Yeah, like I know, I know the Incredibles kind of touched upon that, but no one thought about it until Man of Steel. So after Man of Steel, I guess Hollywood decided we have to, you know, add depth to the damage that these supers cause. So in Civil War, that's the whole plot. The Avengers become divided on how to restrain themselves. Zemo in the Sokovia attack, Zemo lost his whole family, and the Avengers didn't even notice while they were saving the day. So, Zemo tries to destroy their unity, and he actually succeeds, and I will stand by that, because where we're going next is, uh, we'll, we'll prove that he succeeded. Yeah, everyone so, talks about the big guy, but no one yeah. talks about the little guy who ultimately caused... That's true. The... Yeah. So, we're, that, we're gonna, we'll have a debate on that in a second, but so then, in Spider-Man Homecoming, the villain was also, you know, in the first, going was the, the villain was, uh... Adrian Toomes? Adrian Toomes. Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. Yeah. the Vulture. So, he's this const- he's this private contractor who is hired to salvage all the cr- the crud and debris that was left in New York City after the alien army invaded. Would have been a very lucrative job. Yeah, it would have been. And, the, and then the U.S. government, uh, pay, n- totally not bought off by Stark Industries and S.H.I.E.L.D., basically come in and say, yeah, no, all the private contractors are fired, this is a government opportunity... Rather than sue Tony Stark, this guy does the next best thing. He basically takes the alien tech and builds all kinds of crazy weapons. And then you have the naive uh, 15-year-old Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, basically going after him to say, hey, you can't steal stuff that isn't yours. And then when Adrian Toomes talks to him about it, it's like, you ever think about your buddy Stark in that big tower? He's got all this money. And I, this is the abridged version, but it's like, we're just picking up their scraps and fighting their wars. They don't think about the little guys. So Adrian Toomes was another little guy um, yeah. who he had big aspirations. But here's the thing. What I find so fascinating about Adrian Toomes is he didn't even want to rob the Avengers facility. He was saying the whole movie, no, 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 we're not going to do it. We're staying away from the Avengers. We're just going to focus on little jobs. Spider-Man pushed him to say, yeah, no, I need this money because Spider-Man keeps botching our little operations. We're going to go for the big He only needed one more job, and he would have been set. Yeah. So then, Loki comes back that same year in Thor Ragnar. Oh, no, I forgot to talk about Ego. 
Do you consider ego a... No, sim- no fuck no, ego. He, he spent centuries, um, like, trying to end the universe. He's a better villain, though. He's a very good villain. Yeah. And I love Kurt Russell, but I would not call him sympathetic. Okay, so, forget it. So, when we see, uh... I, oh, before we get to Thor Ragnarok, because it ties directly into the next big villain, I want to talk about the last sympathetic... The two last sympathetic villains on this list were Eric... Eric Stevens, a.k.a. Killmonger from Black Panther. Yeah. The poor, he was a poor kid who was just going about his life, it, 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 admittedly, his life in the hood in San Francisco. In, in an impoverished neighborhood. In yeah. an impoverished neighborhood. And unfortunately, uh, due to uh, horrible, horrible family drama, his dad gets killed and he blames not, he blames the whole world for that. So his plot is actually quite ingenious like he literally works his way up through the chain of command he's he goes from being a low-level assassin to a the king of the most powerful nation secretly on earth i mean i know it sounds laughable but no secretly. Wa- no watch but no watch black panther well the, I, I whole, did watch black panther i get what you mean yeah, yeah no uh, but no no like there's there's actually this the scene where like you know t'challa you know fights him and the scene where he he actually gets defeated, you actually almost want to cry for him because there's a scene where he loses the big fight at the end, and it's like, my dad said he was going to show Wakanda to me one day. Did you believe that? Little kid from Oakland running around believing in fairy tales. And he's saying this as he's crying, and then T'Challa just sees his poor cousin like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to give you the last... I'm gonna give you like you know your dying wish. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a Wakandan sunset, and it's it's he says it's beautiful, and then he, he, T'Challa even goes you know the extra mile. It's like maybe we can still heal you, and that's like why? So you can just lock me up, and then Eric Stevens just takes his own life. He just he he he, he, he ends it all. So basic, but there was a lot of talk up until the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman. There was a lot of talk about bringing Killmonger back. I don't know. Uh, Keep him dead. No. Keep him dead. I, no, I don't even know fine. what direction they're going to take the story of Black Panther altogether. There's talk that maybe uh, Letitia Wright, his sister, will will take Letitia the mantle. Letitia yeah. Wright. Letitia Wright, sorry. Will, will take the mantle and become I, the I, queen. I'm pretty sure that's confirmed. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. But Eric Stevens, uh, Killmonger, was the last, was a sympathetic villain. And then Ant-Man and the Wasp, we have Ghost. We already Yes, t- I love Ghost. I, sh- do you know what? I would actually say that she barely qualifies as a villain in this movie. Yeah, she almost does ride the line of being an anti-hero, because like, unlike other villains, she rocks some great plot. Yeah. At the end of the day, her whole life was predicated on as being raised as like a living weapon. Yeah. And with her unstable powers that were slowly killing her throughout the years... To the point where she only has, like, a few weeks left, and she will do anything within her power to, like, try to, like, save herself. Yeah. So, she's, she's basically a survivor kind of character. And, yeah. um, I'm actually very, very happy that, like, characters like, you know, Adrian Toomes or Zemo or even Ghost, like, they don't get killed off or, like, they, some of them get taken away, but Ghost was kind of let off the hook because it's like, no, we, we're going to help you. We're going to help you re, reassess your, like, cells, reorganize your cells so you're not, like, slowly dying anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's almost nice. Like, there's one scene where she's, like, she almost goes so far as to, like, stop Ant-Man by going after his daughter. And then yeah. her mentor, played by Morpheus, <laughs> uh, kind of is like, no, 
we're not gonna go that far. You gotta stop. All right. I will not assist you if you do that. And she yeah. she actually acknowledges it and says, "Fine, yeah. I won't." One, but one of the things I thought was so interesting about Ghost was that um, when I watched her. I actually felt physical pain. Like, when she describes what she's feeling at all times when she's not in her recovery chamber, you actually, you get, you know how, like, when you see an injury on film and your mind kind of tries to replicate it? But that's you, you, you feel it like almost asystematically. Yeah, asy- Yeah, I feel it. I feel it. So I, I can literally, like, feel discomfort in my body whenever I see her go through that pain. So that's a sympathetic villain. No, no, she's um, great. Now, getting now we're going to get into the big daddy. No, before that, yeah. we have to talk about what happened to Loki. So, Lo- yeah. for four years, there's a big question mark. Like, So, Loki is secretly ruling Asgard. He could do some real damage with this. He doesn't do fucking anything. He really doesn't. No, he literally just impersonates Odin for, for God knows how long. And uh, basically just builds monuments in Loki's image. Pretends he... Loki essentially faked his death, so Loki kind of you know, plays that Farage where like, and there's that goofy little play where Matt Damon plays Loki <laughs> again, again. <laughs> and, uh, Matt Damon plays Loki and there's that goofy little play. And there's a big, there's a big monument to Loki in the center of as of Asgard's palace. And it harkens back to something Tony Stark said in the Avengers. Like Loki's a full tilt dealer. He wants f- parades. He wants uh, a monument to the sky with his name plastered. And, yeah, he son of, a bitch. son of a bitch. He literally gets all of that when he pretends to rule Asgard. So, uh, long story short, after Thor goes on a kind of a failed quest to find Infinity Stones, um, he comes back to Asgard, and when he notices something's off about Odin, uh, he basically figures out, like in thirty seconds, that yeah, hi Loki, I know you didn't die again. Look, you faked your death again. Again. So then. Then uh, both Loki and Thor are confronted with Hela, the goddess of death, who is the real villain of Thor Ragnarok. She's not sympathetic. At, no, she's not. No, actually, I kind of. She. I would argue that she sort of is, but you only feel her sympathy for a fleeting moment because she's it's just, just not, she's just awful to everyone, basically. Yeah. No, she, she's fun. She was the the firstborn of Odin that. Odin Odin erased her from existence like because she had a, a genocidal vision to conquer the whole universe and Odin was like no nah, we're not going to do that you're banished to hell and when I and the seal will only be broken when I die and Odin dies and the seal's broken so Hela uh, is unleashed and uh, but th- here's the thing Loki isn't even a villain in this movie you'd think that he could you know trick Thor like one last time but he tries, but at this point, after, like, a bunch of movies where Thor can now read Loki like a book, Thor doesn't fall for Loki's tricks anymore, and uh, Thor actually delves into the unpredictable territory, and thank God for Taika Waititi for steering the whole Thor saga, you know, in a direction that... Because the, the, Thor, the Thor movies were, in, were disconnected and, you know pretty bland they were they were kind of listless in terms of what the direction was like because the first movie was directed by kenneth brana dutch kenneth dutch angle brana and uh the second thor the dark world was directed by a guy that they called off the set of game of thrones alan taylor and yeah 
I literally think they borrowed sets of West of King's Landing too, because there were several shots of Asgard where I'm like, are they in Asgard or King's Landing? Right. But yeah, because well, Game of Thrones was super popular at the time, so they wanted to capitalize on that. So Thor Ragnarok is ostensibly like Loki, kind of getting to be more on Thor's side, right? Pretty much. Well, he literally his arc is almost complete by this point. Yeah, no, his arc was he wants to his arc is he doesn't want to necessarily kill Thor or rule Asgard. He just wants to be Thor's equal, and he'll do whatever childish means it takes to get there. He has some so so some sociopath he has some sociopathic tendencies. And he did invade Earth, but, but he's all right. Yeah, like I, I even like that scene where like um he's chained up and uh like Hulk, Bruce Banner is there uh, through uh, a weird series of circumstances, and it's like last time we saw him, he was trying to kill all of us. Where are you at these days? It varies from moment to moment, and it's like okay, um and then so Loki literally Loki and Thor get separated. And then Loki actually is the key uh, piece of the puzzle in saving everyone on Asgard when uh, all hell literally breaks loose. Because the, the, through a cruel twist of fate, rather than prevent Ragnarok, which is Asgardian Armageddon, they have to cause Ragnarok to save uh, the Asgardian people. Yeah. In a weird, in a, in a hilarious contradiction that only Taika Waititi could pull off so then at the end of the movie um they're all refugees headed for a better life on earth and Loki is there it's like you know what you're going to we're going to have a better life I'm going to be okay but then uh uh-oh you forgot one thing remember that guy who was pulling Loki's strings in the first Avengers movie yeah he's back now and it's none other than Thanos. Mm-hmm. Thanos has only been in two MCU movies. Well, three if you, three or four. He's had some cameos yeah, here and there. He had a cameo at the tail end of the... He had a side profile at the first Avengers movie where he doesn't say anything. He's in Guardians. He's in one scene in Guardians. Uh, he has a post credit scene in Age of Ultron. And then in guardians 2 he is talked about to the point where you really get a sense of how fucked up he is and how abusive he is as a parent to gamora i won't lie the, I won't lie, the early appearances of thanos are very disconnected from like the way we view him in like infinity war it really well it really was and it, it kind of reminds me of like you know Marvel, it took a long time marvel sometimes didn't really understand their own characters they they're they're when different directors came to different projects and maybe that was a consequence of establishing a giant cinematic universe for so long, there was bound to yeah, be creative so, differences. People came and went. Yeah. So, but, um, I always thought it was funny before we get into his character. Like I always thought it was weird. But it's like to challenge them is to court death. And I thought, Oh, is Thanos going to get with Hela or something? You think <laughs> that like, that would have been a good they're, art. They're perfect together. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever. All right, let's get it real. So basically, Thanos, the movie Infinity War opens with Thanos slaughtering half of the Asgardian people. Yep. And Loki and Thor are there to watch. To Loki's credit, Th- Loki actually tries to help. I am not kidding about this. There's a scene where you actually think that he's going to sell Thor out, but no, he had a plan, a poorly thought out plan. Not a great plan. I'm going to basically pretend to help Thanos but then slit his throat 
Thanos doesn't fall for that for one second, and Loki dies for real this time. Uh, but he'll be back. That, that no, no, no. no. In this timeline, Loki is dead. He's not. Yeah, yeah. He, Loki's dead forever. He's not coming back. He uh, will in an all in a branch timeline. He'll be back coming soon to Disney Plus. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. God damn it. But yeah. So, um, well, it's like Luke Skywalker said. No one's ever really gone. Basically. Um. Uh. So then. Thanos basically wants Infinity Stones, and you will understand why he wants Infinity Stones painfully as you watch him kill and maim and beat into submission every character in this amazing movie. So, throughout the whole, you really get a sense of peril. Like, two beloved Marvel characters that we have known for almost a decade at this point get offed in the first five minutes of Infinity War. Heimdall gets uh, a spear through the heart and Loki gets strangled to death. No punches are being pulled. Anyone's li- everyone's life is at stake. So not only do you understand in the first few minutes how deadly and dangerous Thanos is, where the real meat of his persona lies is in his relationship with the thing he loves most in the universe. And there's a very tragic way that we find that out. Mm-hmm. So... He, Thanos basically wants to destroy half of all life in our universe because he believes that resources are finite and that if life is left unchecked and unregulated, life will cease to exist. So he feels that the only way he can prevent that is to basically genocide half of any given population. Yeah, population control. Yeah, it's no. It's like what we do with animals. He did this to Gamora's race in a very tragic uh, flashback scene where he he slaughters half her people. And then when he ki- he kidnaps Gamora, he explains to her, do you know what's happened on your planet since I, since I did that genocide? The children who live there now know nothing of, but full bellies and clear skies. The planet is a paradise. Because you murdered half the population. And then Gamora, who operates with a moral conscience, says, You don't know that genociding half a population will bring a better future. And then Thanos very kindly says, but understandingly says, I'm the only one who knows that. At least I am the only one with the strength to act on it. I will say this. um, There are a lot of moments. You think Thanos would just be absolutely unpleasant. But there are a lot of moments where like, he's very, very restrained and very very like empathetic to Uh, other people while he tortures me well yeah as as he's he is vicious and cruel but he's not unfair sometimes that's true like when he like should we go into other characters that he gets the axes off so yeah basically um he kills loki rightfully because loki talked about yeah yeah. he kills loki so um he destroys uh an entire um trading post in the galaxy called nowhere without remorse that place was kind it would be like if you saw the moss Eisley cantina burn to the ground it, it, it was it was i felt sympathy when he did that but when he basically actually challenges peter quill to kill gamora that's a, like he he's like she's asked hasn't she because thanos is also a, a, a genius he knew that you know Gamora would ask Peter to kill her if he if she was ever captured by Thanos. And then Thanos kind of knew that, and he gives Peter a chance to do that. But it was a trick. 
he use he tricks the, him with the reality stone. Yeah. And uh, I gotta stop snapping my fingers when I talk about Thanos. <laughs> Seriously. It, it, it's, so it then fits. he takes he takes um, Gamora to his headquarters and basically says, we're, "We have to talk because I raised you to be this um, this fierce warrior woman." And I tasked you with the most important goal, which is finding the Soul Stone. Because in this, in the story of the Infinity Stones, every single Soul Stone, every single Infinity Stone, has its has its location locked and located, except the Soul Stone. Uh, Gamora is the only person in the universe that knew where the Soul Stone was, and uh, Thanos captures Nebula. Because he looks into mem into Nebula's mem memory recordings because she's half cyborg, and he, he realizes she plays the scene where Gamora swears on her life that Gamora swears to him that I have no clue where the Soul Stone is. He doesn't say anything. He just clicks uh, Nebula's memory bank and says, "Shows the scene where it's like, yeah, I found the Soul Stone, and I." burned the only piece of evidence that will ever lead to it because Thanos will never find it. And then he says a line to her that's very haunting. He says, you're, you're strong. Me. You're generous. Me. But I never taught you to lie. That's why you're so bad at it. Where is the soul stone? And then he torture. He has the, he has three of the six infinity stones at this point. So he uses the Power Stone and the Reality Stone to essentially strain Nebula's physical body. Like, he could rip Nebula in a, into a hundred different pieces, and he threatens to do that by basically straining her, and her screams are so painful to listen to, and Gamora can't even so take I, it. I'd, I'd rather we didn't go through the entire yeah, yeah, yeah. with Thanos. We already, we've been doing that a lot through so, this entire MCU retrospective. I want to talk about one scene. Let's, let's talk about it. I know what you're going to talk about, so... They, talk about that scene and then explain like how you find him sympathetic okay so uh the scene where that i the scene where uh he he beat he gets the information out of gamora where the soul stone is located and they go there and they discover that the only way one can obtain the soul stone is to sac lose that which you love and make the ultimate sacrifice gamora laughs the most triumphant laugh ever because it's realized yeah you lose your quest stops here because you love nothing and she just rubs it in his face and then Thanos says nothing he's just there like a statue but then he looks at her with tears in his eyes and then she says oh really tears and then uh, the guardian is like they're not for him and then as soon as I saw those tears I'm like Gamora is dead because I'm like he loves her she is the is the ultimate sacrifice and gamora dies yeah a very tragic death and i think i think of all the deaths in that movie that was the most painful yeah after peter parker's death of course oh boy <laughs> but anyway so um so well that even plays into like the last scene in the movie where like thanos ostensibly wins yeah no he no he, he gets forget that he does no he does win and nothing will change the fact that he's won well i know he wins yeah. for five years he plunges the whole universe into a state of loss yeah, death yeah. and that's despair not, that's not the point the point is like when he has that flashback and he's like well not even a flashback kind of like a he's it's in a, a vision it's board. a vision like a vision okay it's like and he's with a young gamora and she says did you do it 
Yes. What did it cost? Everything. And then when you see him in Endgame, it, 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 we had to. Can you imagine being in the audience? Future generations will ne- who who actually got to go see this in the theater will never understand what it was like to wait a year to see what happens next. So then, we when we finally see what happens next, uh, they go to hit the planet he's hiding out on, and it's not he doesn't go to this evil lair. He goes to a nice cottage in some gorgeous tropical, like foresty planet somewhere, and he's basically just farming and making a soup. He's not die. He's not concocting more evil schemes he's just minding his own business and living a peaceful life his mission was completed he just wants to retire so he go they go to the garden they go to his cottage and then um Thanos, they caught they try to cough it up out of Thanos, like where what'd you do with the stones because he doesn't have them he says yeah i destroyed them because they have no purpose and i want to make sure that no one can undo what i did so the work is done it always will be i am inevitable and then um, War Machine frantically trying to deny that this is the truth. He says, we have to tear this place apart. He has to be lying. The stones have to be here somewhere. And then Nebula very tragically says, my father is many things. A liar is not one of them. And then the last thing he says to Nebula before Thor whacks his head off and goes for the head that time is, thank you, daughter. Perhaps I treated you too harshly. And then Thor just kills him in a weakened state of despair yeah but so what makes so I, I think that's ostensibly the sympathetic thanos because yeah. like there's another thanos another timeline who didn't go through the throes of his experiences in infinity war no he didn't and he as such he's way more uh, tyrannical and ruthless yeah so what what makes thanos sympathetic in your eyes what makes thanos sympathetic to me is that even though he claim even though you don't think he loves anything he has this this possessive obsession and love for life itself to the point where he feels like the only way to sustain life is to sacrifice life so he is an extremely long-term thinker but it's the classic misguided zealot trope he believes what he's doing is right, but he does not, and he is so in love with the idea of a grateful universe, and he's so he's so obsessed with it that he feels like the only way life can live is if it is kept in check. So, and by the way, going back to a point I made earlier, when he tells Gamora, "When I gen- when I murdered half your planet, the the, the people who live there now know it's better. Yeah, it's better." He wasn't lying about that. And there's even a line in Endgame where Cap, in, where Captain America is telling Black Widow, "Hey, you know, when I was driving up by the Hudson, I saw whales." And then she's like, "You know what? If you're trying to tell me that there's a bright side to this, I'm gonna punch you in the face." And it's like, "Well, you don't want to think about it, but there is merit to. Obviously, I'm not gonna advocate for genocide ever on any record, but." You almost understand where he's coming from, and there actually was a hashtag trending for a very long time. Thanos hashtag Thanos was right. Yeah, there was. I remember I was on a set one time, and everyone after the end of Infinity War, while I was on set, was saying, "Yeah, it's done. Yeah, you don't need any more Marvel movies." Like Thanos uh, did the right thing. Yeah, I was like, I don't know about but, that, but yeah. But the beauty with sequels is, as a member of the audience, yours you can. 
it, when you're consuming media, you can stop. The story ends for the you wherever you want it to end. Yep. That's why I don't like it when Star Wars fans complain about how the Rise of Skywalker, the the sequel trilogy, ruins the whole. No, it doesn't. If you want to end the story there, then end the story there. End the story at Return of the Jedi. Yeah. If you well, want to know more, are... there's more. And there will be more. Yeah, no, there will be more. I thought Endgame would be the perfect opportunity to just put the brakes on the MCU like a great TV show. Just end it. No more multiple cinematic universes. But Disney took over. There's money to be had. So now we got to deal with the WandaVision. Yeah, quite quite frankly, I will watch other Marvel movies. But to me, like I think they've reached their highest point of uh, excellence they peaked game. i think that's just such a well done like ending yeah. for all the work they've done now can i be honest yeah, I with know. you um remember we talked about this in our marvel episode but yeah no anything that came out after it, it was a mistake to release far from spider-man far from home less than three months after endgame it felt tacked on a little bit. Yeah, no, it felt like the book had an amazing final chapter, and then there's this little epilogue that doesn't really match up with the rest of the story. Yeah. Like, but anyways, so in so going back to a question I asked you earlier, do you feel like if Zemo's plan didn't work in Civil War, Thanos would have succeeded? Because the theory is Thanos won because the Avengers were disorganized and unprepared for his strike. Thanos want the Avengers being divided was Thanos's greatest advantage. As we see in Endgame, the Avengers being united, a united event, the United Avengers actually gave him a run for his money. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So do you feel like Zemo is the reason the snap happened? In a it, way, it's interesting. I think Avenger, I think Ultron was the crack in the armor. He's the one that really caused like a lot of issues with the team. Then Zemo was the thing that pried them apart and broke the armor. And then Thanos was the one who took advantage of that. Yeah, so... Of the vulnerable Avengers. Yeah, it's like... That beautiful analogy, by the way. Uh, Thank you. Ultron cracking the armor, Zemo caused the crack to rust and worsen, and then Thanos just ripped the armor off. Yeah. So, um... But did you actually give credit to a villain you dislike? Because I know you don't like Ultron. Well, yeah, but there was a lot of drama in Age of Ultron, and that's where it all started. There's not a lot of drama in Avengers. Yeah. By the way, we, we we didn't talk about Ultron. Is he is he sympathetic? No. Uh, no. I don't know. Like he's a he's a creation created by a creator. But he was not. But he but he had a narcissistic complex up the ass yeah i didn't like him very much yeah. but um by the end of it it's like yeah just put this thing out of its misery i don't know yeah but i don't know i didn't like ultron so i can't say i really so too bad for um him. i'm not gonna uh, by the way you have not seen wandavision i have not not yet okay i will say this uh there the antagonist in that movie I, it's not really clear who the villain is but until later until the end of the se the series but there's a lot of sympathy for both, for all the villains in that. I'm just going to say that. There's a lot of sympathy. Hmm. Um, so, and, I guess the MCU is getting better at making villains. Yeah. Better. Now, do you feel like... Any, I think... Do we talk about this in our Marvel episode? I can't remember, but... You talked about, like, what's what's next? Like, do you feel like the if they... What better villain could trump Thanos? Like... My, I'm putting all my money on Galactus. I feel... Well, now that they own Fox, I feel like that was their next move. I feel like, yeah, I know we're gonna have a we're gonna build up to Thanos for ten years, and we're gonna spend the next however many years building up to Galactus. Like if they want to end the MCU on Galactus, I'd be very happy because Galactus 
Well, he's not as complex as Thanos. The whole deal with him is he simply is a force that devours planets. He's not driven by much else. Yeah. He just needs to devour planets for his own sustenance. He has a he has a courier like a person yeah. a page who drives around the uh, entire galaxy searching for planets. Yeah, the most uh, resources to consume. Yeah. That's where Silver Surfer comes in. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he basically he's massive. He can yeah. devour entire planets, yeah. as I said a billion times. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they're gonna make him like much deeper than that. I know if he's wronged, he will come back again and again until the planet is his. Yeah, I don't know how they permanently stop him. But well, yeah. well, well, that actually kind of leads into a fear I have because they found a way to bring back Loki without actually they they basically created an alternate. We're gonna timeline. get into multiverses but now. My but my worry is that what if they find a, what if instead of what going for what if they that's gonna be a series too what if my <laughs> I have a fear what if they basically shelve they 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 don't do anything with Galactus as an intellectual property and they just find ways to bring back Thanos again. No. Don't do that. Don't do that. Thanos had a great one run. Th- sorry, Thanos had a great run. All he needed was two films. That's it. Don't do anything more with it. It's him. like why you shouldn't bring Iron Man back. Like, it's all wrapped up. Stop! And okay. I, I heard somewhere that, like, you know, Chris Evans is talking about wanting to come back. Might want to come back. No! That was it. Like... Well, I could see Cap coming back maybe one more time, but not Iron It'd Man. have to be a Joe Biden Cap. If he goes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it, it, I feel like Old Man Cap is gonna have a nice thing to say in Civil War. It, no, in Falcon and Winter Soldier, the next big series. I'm looking forward to that show because Zemo is back. Oh, really? Yeah, no, he's back, and he even has his classic costume with the purple uh, face mask. Oh yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So you're looking forward to that, but you're not looking forward to Black Widow. And so I wouldn't watch it. I'm just like, eh. She's gone. You know, it's just going to be a hanger on kind of thing. Literally before Cody was messaging us in a group chat saying what they should have done was they, what Cody said was they should have released, uh, the black widow movie on the release date that they picked for captain Marvel in 2019. A lot of people feel that way, but they had to establish Carol Danvers. Carol Danvers barely did anything in in Avengers Endgame. in Civil War, we didn't have a Black Panther movie before we saw Black Panther. It's okay to have That's characters true, pop yeah. in, and then we have a movie about them afterwards. Yeah. And in the DCU, we saw Wonder Woman before a Wonder Woman movie, so... Yeah. Yeah. So, shall we wrap this up? Yeah, no. Sympathetic villains. Uh, I feel like we Marvel kind of dominated the latter half of this, but yeah, no. Well, I, I want to talk... Star Wars. I want to talk about that, because... You know, like, Marvel are is, like, the primary mode of entertainment that everyone is consuming these days, so... Yeah. That's why that's why I wanted to pick more underground characters yeah, who but deserve some spotlight. You know what, like, their villains started out as cookie-cutter, but there's a lesson to be learned from writing great villains. And I think Thanos is one of the best cinematic villains in the rec- in recent cinema history. And he's earn- he may earn his place over the years alongside with, you know, other iconic villains... So, he was, he's kind of a masterclass in how to write a villain. So, if you want to make more characters like Thanos, more power to you. Just, you know, innovate what has already been done. Yeah. You can't create something totally original, but innovate. Innovate, innovate, innovate. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Yes. (laughs) Have yourself a good night. Take care. Be good. We're bad. 
I don't give a shit. Oh, <laughs>